We'll now open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to find ourselves in verses 14 through 16 this morning. And I have to tell you as you're turning there that this is a part of a bigger section. We're coming to a part of Romans chapter 8 where, where it's all interwoven. It's like a tongue and groove. It's like dovetail. Everything is connected. And it's almost uh, difficult to, to chop off the sausage links for a sermon uh, uh, amount to, to cover. And yet, we can't cover the whole uh, rest of the chapter this afternoon. So we're going to be taking this section, but let me just tell you, what we're discussing today will bleed over into next week, and what we're discussing today picks up what we did in our last study of Romans. Romans chapter 8, let me put the text in our mind that we'll be studying this morning, Romans 8 verses 14 through 16. Romans 8, 14. Paul says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are Children of God. Take a quick inventory of your prayers. Listen to how you launch your prayers. Listen to how I launch the prayers on Sunday morning or Sunday night. Listen to the way your children begin their prayers. My suspicion is that the better part of the time, I can't put a percentage on it, but most of the time, Our first words we utter when addressing God are something like this. Father. Our Father. And for good reason. When Jesus provided the disciples with a model prayer, he said, begin it this way. Our Father who art in heaven. When the dear friend of the Lord Jesus himself, John, probably his best friend on the earth during his earthly ministry, wrote his gospel. In the very first chapter, John says this. John chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, Jesus, he gave them the right to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Then he gives us a little spiritual identity to what this this fatherhood of God is. Who were not born of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. God as father and we as a son or a daughter. The relationship is incredible. This relationship with God is a part of his glorious attributes that we call the fatherhood of God. It's not an attribute of God that we often isolate and study by itself, but it should be. That God comes to his children, his believers, as a familial relationship. He comes as a father to a son, a father to a daughter. But to really understand part of God, this part of God's character, I think we need to drill down a little bit deeper and say, why? Why is God a father to us? Why are we children to him? This is explained by perhaps the most moving part of our salvation. And by moving, I really mean emotionally, experiential, the most um, heartwarming, uh, generating feature of God 
to someone who's been saved by his grace. And that is the doctrine of adoption. It's the doctrine of adoption. We made our way to the middle of Romans 8. And the driving theme of all of the chapter is the spirit of God and his ministry to us. His ministry for us. His ministry in us. His ministry through us. This chapter has more references to the Spirit of God than any other. It is all about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We came out of chapter 7, chapter 6 and 7 talking about sanctification. And in chapter 8, Paul says this is how it works because you have an engine inside you that generates obedience. This engine that generates worship. And it is the living, abiding presence of God, namely His Spirit. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in a person, in a believer, think about this. For God, the creator God, the God of the universe, to abide in, dwell with a person has to make a radical difference. If God were to show up in this room and materialize, if his son were to walk through these doors and stand on the stage, everything would change. And yet... The presence of God abides with the believer in his spirit. And the question is, does he cause that radical change? Holy Spirit, in the verses before us, cause a fundamental disposition and change in our identity. It changes who we are, what we like, what we dislike. It changes us from the inside out. That change is in some measure instantaneous, and that change takes the rest of our lives. Here, Paul talks about a different nuance to this and a different motivation. This is, this is the heartwarming section of Romans 8. We're going to get into the deep end of the theological pool here in a few weeks. This is where we just stop and pause and say, wow, what a God. What a God who would be like this to sinners like us. We gain a new father in salvation. We gain a new family in salvation. And all of this flows from being what Paul calls spiritually adopted by the creator who changes us from slaves to sons and daughters. Now, I know in our church, we have some people who were adopted. Uh, my, my mother was adopted. She was a twin, and they were adopted when they were uh, very young, and uh, she never knew her biological parents. Adoption is a precious reality. Uh, James says it's pure and undefiled religion to take care of widows and orphans, and that is worthy of a study. It's all, it's all built on understanding God's adoption for us, and our adoption of children in this world gives a simple reflection of what God is doing in heaven as well. But I wonder if you would ever introduce yourself like this. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm, I'm Rick. Um, tell me a little about yourself, and they tell you about them, your, themselves, and then you say, well, that's interesting. I, you know, I, was a, um, I grew up in Tennessee, and, uh, but I was adopted when I was 16. They would probably say, oh, really? Well, what happened to you? For, no, no. My, my parents were always there, but I was adopted when I was 16. They would say, well, what are you talking about? Who, who adopted you? Good question. This text tells us that when you become a believer, you become adopted by God. The inference is before God adopts you, you are a spiritual orphan. Let's dive into this and see. We're going to look at this subject of adoption and look at three effects. Three effects of divine adoption. If you're following along with an outline, you can... 
track along this. Three effects of divine adoption. The first effect is this, a new father. We get a new father. Look back at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Now, the first thing you need to do when you're looking at a text is look at the context, is look at the the grammar. The first word of this text says what? For, which means it's a subordinate clause. It leans on something else. This is flowing right after, watch this, verse 13. Verse 14 comes right after verse 13. Look back at verses, let's look at 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. In Romans 6, he talks about us being enslaved to the flesh. We are slaves to the flesh. But if by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, you are putting to death the deeds of the body and you will live for those who are being led by the Spirit. See the connection there? It goes right back and connects to what he's talking about with the the, the doctrine of mortification, killing the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, in order to understand this, this uh, idea of adoption, I want to, I wanna, before we get into verse uh, 14, I want to go draw a contrast for you and with you. We need the companion truth in Ephesians chapter 2. Because this idea of who is your father, who is, who's the, the daddy of your desires, who gave you your, your, your imprints spiritually, is connected very clearly in a passage we know very well. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Spirit, sons of disobedience. That's really important. Our nature, our spirit, the course that we follow, we were sons of disobedience. In other words, our father, the influence, the progenitor of our spiritual DNA is disobedience. That's interesting. Sons of disobedience. He goes on. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest. Isn't it interesting? It talks about our, our parents being disobedience and wrath. That's, we're the offspring of disobedience and the offspring of wrath. Now, I want you to see something. Turn over to John chapter 8 for a moment. John 8, because this, this idea of fatherhood is really important to understand before we realize what it means to be adopted by the Spirit. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having one of his many discussions and arguments with the the Jews and these uh, Pharisee leaders who were were challenging him. And this idea of fatherhood comes up. And and by the way, this gets really, really pointed, really graphic in a moment. Because they, they take a shot at Jesus like none other. Jesus was saying, verse 31, John chapter 8. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. That's very interesting. They had believed him. Believed in him. They were so-called believers. They wanted Jesus for what he could provide for them. I mean, think about this. Pretty interesting guy to follow. He, he can make up food and he can heal diseases. That's the kind of guy you want to run for president, right? He can fix all diseases and he can, he can fix all your financial problems. 
Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, then he gives a conditional word. If, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered to him, we are Abraham's descendants. Abraham's our father. And we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free? See how they're pushing back? Jesus is talking right over their heads. They don't get it. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Remember that. We'll come back to that in a moment. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. You know what they were saying? Do you remember the circumstances of Jesus' birth? Remember that Joseph kept her a virgin until Jesus was born, which meant that she was pregnant before her and Joseph came together. Everybody knew that. Even up to this day in Jesus' life, he was still carrying around the reputation of his mother of being born or conceived out of wedlock. We were not born of fornication, implication like you were. We have one father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, here we go, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Here it is. You are of your father, who? The devil. And want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. What's going on here? Jesus draws some very interesting conclusions. He says, you're, you're of your father the devil because he lied and you lied. In other words, your character indicates who your spiritual father is. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. You want a simple question answered about how you know if God is your father? Do you love Jesus? Is he preeminent in your life? Is he the anchor of your soul? Now back to Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What does this mean? Well, remember, in 11 to 13, the one who is led by the Spirit of God is the one who is involved in aggressive sanctification, putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He's the one who hates sin, fights sin, repents of sin, has a hunger and appetite to know God through his word, who has an increasing love for God's Son. Jesus said that, if God were your Father, you would love me. 
Why is that in our mission statement? To value Jesus Christ above all else. Because sons and daughters of God love the Son of God. Very simple. In other words, sons of God are not the ones who look like their father physically, but ones who act like their father spiritually. Just like a child who's adopted may not have the physical characteristics of a father or mother, but will end up acting much like them. We have a new father that leads us right into number two. We have a new identity. Number two, a new identity. Verse 15. For, that's connected again, you're being led by the Spirit of God. How do you know you're led by the Spirit of God? We'll come back to that. Basically, you love Jesus and obey, the, and obey God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Jesus just said you're a slave to sin. You're a slave of your father, the devil, if you do his deeds. You've not received a spirit of slavery again leading to uh, fear. But you have, man, do you underline things in your Bible? You have received a spirit, a disposition. This isn't the Holy Spirit. This is your soul. This is who you are. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Two identities are put forth in this passage. One is a slave. One is a son. The slavery is an obvious reference to our former lives in which we were slaves to sin. Jesus said that. Paul has said that in Romans 6. Paul gives an interesting insight into the nature of the relationship between slaves and masters here. It's driven by fear. It's driven by fear. Motivated by fear. Governed by fear. In other words, being treated harmfully and intimidated is the, is the motivation for why you would obey your master as a slave. Motivation and intimidation. They go hand in glove because you're afraid you'll be treated harmfully if you don't obey. However, when a person becomes a Christian, when a person gives their life to Jesus Christ, there is a massive difference in the way that he reacts to God as contrasted with the way a slave reacts to a master. We find it, see that word but? You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. In other words, where you're intimidated that if you don't obey, you're going to be, have harmful consequences. But instead, you have received a spirit of adoption. Here we meet the concept of adoption. Now, in studying this this week, I want to tell you, I was, I was a little bit surprised to, to find out what I'm about to tell you. The term adoption does not show up anywhere in the Old Testament. The verb or the noun, they don't show up in the Old Testament. Now, be, be careful because the concept is described in a lot of places. Moses was not adopted but he was cared for by Pharaoh right Mordecai brought up his his uh, his cousin a girl named Esther and though that's not called adoption it's clearly the concept of adoption where does the concept of adoption come from in this passage is is it the old testament well, well kind of shadowy yes 
But it also comes from the New Testament understanding. Not a New Testament verse, but the New Testament era. The Roman culture in which Paul was writing. In the first century AD, adopted sons were deliberately chosen by adoptive fathers, get this, to perpetuate their name and to have an inheritance if they did not have a son themselves. It was about moving on property and estate, leaving it in the family. And if you didn't have anyone to give that to as a son or a daughter, you would adopt someone legally so that you could give your possessions to them. They would take on your name. They would become your son or daughter legally. It's all about what you inherit if it's about being an heir. By the way, look down at verse 17. This will, we'll get this next week. And if children, what's the next word? Heirs. It's obvious that Paul has this in his mind, this inheritance of what God would give us, this inheritance of what an adoptive father leaves his son. He says the same thing to the Galatians, Galatians 4 verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is about inheriting. And down in verses 21 and following, we're going to see that it's about inheriting eternal life. It's what God gives us as our inheritance, being adopted by him. It goes way beyond the general idea of adoption in the Old Testament. And it goes way beyond the idea of a first century adoption. How do we know that? Because the concept of adoption here is fundamentally different than what you see in the Old Testament and radically different than what you see in the Roman culture. How do you know that? Because we find this little phrase that we then address God like this. Abba, Father. The name Abba is the intimate family term for daddy, for father, it was used typically by a baby or a small child. When you grew up uh, older, you would change from Abba to Father. Paul includes both here, Abba, Father. It's our equivalent to saying Dad, Daddy. Now, we think of this as some little childish name. you, you, you got to get that, that concept out of your mind. It's a term of intimacy and endearment. And the reason we know this, this is a shocking, shocking, interesting uh, revelation. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Mark says that he cries out to the Father and calls him Abba. In his suffering, Jesus addresses God the Father as Abba. He wasn't reverting to some two-year-old. He was reverting to the most intimate relationship a father and a son, a father and a child can share. It's intimate. It's precious. It's not the language of the unsure. It's not the language of the unassured. It's of an adopted child who has been rescued from an orphanage called the world. I, uh, my first time in Russia... I was up, up in Siberia in uh, Krasnoyarsk. And the church in which I was uh, doing uh, some teaching, um, they said, hey, what are you doing on Tuesday? Well, I'm in Russia, and it's 32 below zero. I, there was, uh, I wasn't going sightseeing. So I said, I'm, I'm not doing anything. They said, well, would you like to go uh, to orphanage visitation with us? And I said, I don't know what that is, but, but sure. Now, the, um, this is... 
Modern day Russia is much like we were, you know, 80, 90 years ago in that uh, there was no foster care system uh, then and there's not now in Russia. It's, It's orphanages. We went to three different orphanages and I can only tell you that the conditions that I saw were beyond horrific. I couldn't sleep that night. The condition of these children was, was um, they, were, they were ravaged, they were hungry. Um, we, uh, had, we had taken, we got some, uh, um, I had brought some uh, big uh, fun size, what do you call that, candy, those little fun size things, these tiny little bites of chocolate, Milky Ways and Three Musketeers. And I remember uh, taking those in and we gave those to the kids and I, I've never, I, honestly, I've never seen more joy on a human face than one of those little orphans taking some chocolate and eating it. Some of them for the first time. This one girl, I'll never forget, she was about 13. She hugged me when I left and I'll never forget hugging her back because I felt every rib in her, in her rib cage. She was so thin. I remember giving her chocolate and one of these little pieces of chocolate and she didn't eat it. Everyone was ripping it open and putting it in their mouth and she didn't. And I had a translator there and uh, I said, ask uh, Irina, why, why, she, why are you not eating this chocolate? She said, back to the translator, that there was one of the girls who was too sick to come to our meeting with the American and she was back. She was gonna give that chocolate to her because she thought it would mean more to her. Talk about ripping your heart out. So let's just say Irina went home with a little bit more chocolate than anyone else. (laughs) They were so destitute. I I, I just felt myself wanting to adopt every one of them. We spiritually are so destitute. This is the picture. This is the picture that God gives us. I like the way the Tyndale Bible Dictionary, Elwell and Comfort, describe adoption, especially with reference to the future. This is what it says. Adoption was a privilege given to God's people under the old covenant, according to Romans 9, 4. Both Israel as a whole and individual Israelites knew God as Father, Isaiah 64 and Hosea 1 say. Since the New Testament regards adoption as ultimately possible only through Jesus Christ, Israel's adoption before the incarnation was an underage sonship comparable to the status of servanthood. Jesus, in Jesus, the privilege of mature sonship was extended to include both Jews and Gentiles. Though adoption is a benefit enjoyed in the present experience of God's people, I love this, its full extent is realized only at the resurrection from the dead. And that's, by the way, mentioned in verses 21 to 23 of this chapter. We are adopted, but we don't get to go home with the Father until our death. You ever think of yourself as adopted as a believer? You've been, you've been chosen out of the orphanage. You, you've been tapped on the shoulder. Come and be mine, God says. I will be your father. You will be my son or my daughter. We're gonna come back and study that a little bit more next week, but just hold that in your mind. Three effects of divine adoption, a new father, a new identity, no no longer slaves but sons. Number three, a new assurance. A new assurance This is incredible. The Spirit himself, stop right there. 
Notice that it doesn't say the Spirit itself. We have to really guard our language when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. The Greek couldn't be more specific here. The English reflects it very well. The Spirit himself, he is God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. This is going to be an incredible ride through this verse, so hold on. The Holy Spirit assures believers of this real and intimate relationship of being a child of God. Notice he gives an independent testimony to our sonship in a way which is experiential. I said it. It's internal. This is assurance. It's assurance that's deep in our soul. It, it, it defies any more description than Paul provides here. This, the Spirit of God testifies, speaks to, assures our spirit that we're sons of God. Also notice that the Holy Spirit corroborates that testimony of our own spirit. We, we believe that we believe because we believed. We believe that we're saved because we believe. But the Holy Spirit comes and gives testimony along with our own belief that we are a child of God. Our own spirit, our spiritual sensitivities should indicate that we are children of God. Now, if you're smart, and I know you are, you'll look at this verse and say, hang on. If the spirit testifies with my spirit and assures me that I'm a son of God, that I'm a daughter of God, that I'm a child of God, I want that assurance. How can I know that the spirit of God is testifying with my spirit? Well, first of all, let's just say that God has no speech impediment. That if he wants to communicate something to us, he's not wringing his hands and hoping that we get it. This chapter gives us a very clear indication of how we know that the Spirit of God testifies, corroborates our own spirit. We just saw it in the previous two verses. Conviction of sin, the desire to fight sin. Do you hate your sin more and more in an increasing fashion? Do you see more and more parts of you and you just say, I hate that. I want to change that. I want to change that from the way I was in my old humanness to the way I am in my redeemed humanness. Do you have a desire to change? I mean, look back at at verse uh, uh, 13 again. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if... By the Spirit, here it is, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, then you will live. Are you putting to death the deeds of the flesh? You want to know what those are? Go to Galatians chapter 5. The deeds of the flesh are obvious, but you know what? I think your conscience can tell you what the deeds of the flesh are pretty accurately. So do you have a conviction of sin? If you do, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. Do you have a desire for God's word? To know what God says, to apply what God has, has communicated? That comes from the Spirit of God. Do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Do these things come out of you? Because of your love for Christ, because of your relationship with, with, with the Holy Spirit, does love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control just happen because... You're controlled by the Spirit. And then as Jesus said in in, uh, uh, John 8, if God were your father, you would love and listen to me, he said. John 14, John 16, Jesus is very clear. The Spirit of God 
His primary role in the life of a believer is to point to the Son. So I think one of the main ways the Spirit of God testifies that we are sons of God with our spirit is by recognizing, increasing, accenting, developing, and growing our love of Jesus. I pray, I pray for our church, I pray when I look at our mission statement that we would never ever move away from focusing on the Son of God, the incarnate God, that we would be Christians, Christ ends, that he would be our love, our focus. He's the final word of God. He's the communication of God. To know Jesus is to know God. And the only way to know God is to know Jesus. I'm convinced more and more that the enemy of the church wants to make our meetings, our interactions, our relationships, our study, even our sanctification about everything and anything but the person of Christ. We need to make sure, hold each other's hands, put our fingers in each other's sternums and say, is Jesus the focus? Is he, is he the object of our faith? At the end of this chapter, we're gonna find that nothing can, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in where? Christ Jesus, our Lord. So this text speaks of two experiences we have. The experience of, of being led by the Spirit and testified by God's Spirit in assurance. In verse 14, we're led by the Spirit. Here, God's Spirit speaks to us. Both of these, quote, experiences are in lockstep with our pursuit of holiness in the context. In other words, experience follows obedience, not vice versa. You don't look for an experience and then maybe you'll obey. We obey and then experience assurance and being led by the Spirit follows after that. How are you, let me ask you this way, how do you evaluate your growth in Christ? So if you put your, 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 your finger on your pulse and if you want to check your health, you kind of put the, the thermometer in your, in your soul and say, am I running a fever? If you check your health spiritually, what do you use? This text is really helpful. Are you being led by the Spirit? Verse 16. And does the Spirit testify with your spirit? Verse 16. Verses 14 and 16. You say, well, how do I know that? It comes back to being able to cry, Abba, Father. Do you have an intimate relationship with, with God? Is God in your mind some giant you know, 10-foot coiled-up cobra in a five-foot-by-five-foot five room that you can't escape? Well, what's your view of God, or is he your father? When Jesus was in his distress in the garden, he says, Abba, Abba, Father, Dad. It's this intimacy. It's this relationship that's not of a slave with a master and a master to a slave. This is not insignificant because Paul, Paul's taught our, uh, the lordship of Christ all through the first seven chapters. He will teach it uh, throughout the rest of the book. But he says it's not just lordship, it's more. It's God is father. Which means he cares for us. Which means we begin bearing his resemblance. It also has implications for those other people who call God father. 
let's, let's, let's look at it this way. If, if God is my father by adoption, if God is Brian's father by adoption, that makes us siblings. It has implications for the church, for the family of God. We serve, we honor, we love, we pray to, we're affectionate toward the same father. I've said it before, look around this room. You're gonna spend eternity with these folks. It might be a good idea to get to know them now. This is our family. We have a new family with God as our father. The key in this text is, and we're gonna come back to this next week, so just hold on to it, is this Abba this, this intimacy. How do you develop intimacy with the Father? You do it the same way you do with anyone else. You get to know them. You don't go up to, if, you're, if there's a, a person who you're eventually going to marry, um, your first conversation with them, you usually don't address them as honey. Um, that, that, that comes after familiarity. Abba comes after familiarity. It, it, it it's a soul sitting before God with the knowledge of God's love and care, concern. And it's a soul sitting before God who knows the Father well enough, who just pours out this affectionate love and dependence toward him. Why? Because he's adopted us. In... In his excellent book entitled Adopted for Life, which is a book about, it's interesting, I was going to say it's a book about uh, adopting children for us. In, in, in the opening um, introduction, Russ Moore, the author, says it's really, it's really not about just about adoption of children. It's not just about adoption with God. The, you can't think of one without the other. I highly recommend the book to you, Adopted for Life. Russell Moore opens up that book with this little story. He says this. My sons, my boys, were at a chapel service on the campus where I served to train pastors for Christian ministry. It was a seminary. They were about to hear me preach. They know better than to misbehave in church, and this seemed kind of like a church service. They also knew that I had warned them that they would only, could only sit up front on the front row with me if they were still and quiet with nothing distracting going on down there while I was preaching. But a friend of mine had other plans for them that day. Benjamin and Timothy, he whispered only a few minutes earlier to my sons, will you help me introduce your daddy before he preaches? I fidgeted with my uncomfortable over-the-ear microphone while I watched these two strong, vibrant little five-year-old boys walk up the platform steps. They were peering at me the whole time to make sure they weren't breaking the rules that we'd agreed upon. I watched them stand before the pulpit and listened to them answer questions from my colleague. Who's going to preach today? My friend asked. Daddy, Benjamin responded. And what's he going to preach about? He continued. Timothy then answered quickly, leaning into the microphone, Jesus. Then he says this, for a couple of seconds, my mind flashed back to the first time I ever saw these two boys. They were lying in excrement and vomit, covered in heat blisters and flies, in an orphanage somewhere in a little mining community in Russia. Maria and I had applied to adopt, 
and had gone on the first of two trips, not knowing who, if anyone, we would find waiting for us. Immediately upon landing in the former Soviet Union, I wondered if we had made the worst mistake of our lives. Sitting in a foreign airport with the smell of European perfume, human sweat, cigarette smoke wafting around us, Maria and I recommitted to God that we would trust him, that he would adopt, and that we would adopt whomever he directed us to, regardless of what medical or emotional problems they may have. A Russian judge told us that she had two, quote, gray-eyed, end quote, boys picked out for us. Both of them, both of whom had been abandoned by their mothers to a hospital in the little village about an hour from where we were staying. Sure enough, the orphanage authorities, through our translators, cataloged a terrifying list of the medical problems of these boys, including fetal alcohol syndrome for one, if not both of the boys. We looked at each other as if to say, this is what the Lord has for us, so here we go. The nurse led us up the stairs, down a dark hallway, and into a tiny room with two little beds. I can still see the younger of the two, now Timothy, rocking up and down against the bars of his crib, grinning widely. The older, now Benjamin, was more reserved, stroking my five o'clock shadow with his hand and seeing, I came to understand, a man probably for the first time in his life. Both of the boys had hair matted down on their heads and one of them had crossed eyes. Both of them moved slowly and rigidly, almost like stop-motion clay animated characters from one of those Christmas television specials of our 1970s childhoods. And we loved them both at an intuitive, almost primal level from the very first second. Do you understand what God saw when he adopted us? It wasn't fetal alcohol syndrome. It wasn't just a disease or crossed eyes that could be fixed. It wasn't just lying in excrement and vomit. We were that and worse and had a stiff arm in his face. And he adopted us because of his son. When we understand that, then we'll understand what it means to say, Abba, Father. We come to you, Lord, as our Father, an intimate dad and daddy who looked down at wretches like us. to adopt us as heirs, as sons, as daughters. To give us your name. To give us a future. To eradicate our past. And to make our present make sense. Lord, let us never take for granted the phrase that we address you by when we say, Father. Knowing that the death of your son is what rescued us from the orphanage of this world. So build intimacy into our relationships 
We want to know you as you know us, looking to that great day when we will see you as you see us. But here when we look into this mirror dimly, oh, Father, give us the cry of Abba in love and intimacy. Because you've changed us from slaves to sons. Our heads are still bad. If, if you don't know God as your father, if there is no intimacy, you can know that today by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Our prayer will be open to my right. Ben and Becky will be over there. We'd love to pray with you, talk to you, bear any burden we can with you. But please, I beg you, don't leave without being able to address God as Father. Lord, dismiss us now with fresh affection for you, the King who adopted us. In Jesus' name, amen.